this morning as we are uh, moving continually in our study through the book of Leviticus, you see on the screen, uh, it says, Living God's Way. That's the title of the message today, Living God's Way. And we are in the book of Leviticus, chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And we'll be going through chapter 7, verse 10. You say, Brian, that's a lot of text. And it is. There's a lot going on there. Uh, so I will try not to keep you until 3 in the afternoon. Uh, I know we have already moved the service back an hour, so I will be mindful of that. But there is uh, some really good things for us to see through this study. And I'll make note, as, note of it as well. During this time, if we were passing the plate, we would normally take up our offering this during this time. Uh, if you want to, you can do that at the end of the gathering when we go to leave. Or you can go online to homesavenue.com forward slash give. And you can give that way, especially if you're at home uh, right now. You can go and uh, go to that link and you can give there if you want to. Um, but we are, as I said, in this series, the book of Leviticus, Holy God, Holy People. And in this series, we have been looking at this idea and this concept that because our God is holy, he has called his people to be holy as well. And so we have journeyed a lot so far through this book. We have seen in these opening chapters this sacrificial system that God lays out for the people, for those that sin. Uh, there's times of when you can come and, and offer a, a sacrifice for a time of devotion to God, a time of making atonement for sin. We've seen all of these different things happen in these first five chapters of Leviticus. Now specifically here in 6 and 7 today, uh, we are going to see uh, how the priests are specifically supposed to handle these things in the role that God has called them to. Now I mentioned the fact that I've entitled the message today, Living God's Way. And God's giving directions to Moses, to the people of Israel, how to offer these sacrifices, how the priests are supposed to do these things. And I want to make sure that I mentioned last week... Before um, uh, Pastor Walter came down the coronavirus, he was here with us last Sunday, and he preached an amazing message, the perpendicular grace of God. And it shows this, this whole process by which, and we know from the New Testament especially, we see it, how we have been reconciled to God, and then therefore we are agents of reconciliation, ministers of reconciliation uh, with those that are around us in the body of Christ. And so today we're going to see how through giving these directions to the priests and how they are to carry out these sacrifices, these offerings that are being offered by the people, we're going to see how God provides the way for his people to live and how he expects obedience from that. Now for those of you that may be new to Holmes Avenue or new to us online, you know that we typically would stand up and, and honor the reading of God's word and uh, because of these lengthy passages, I'm trying to be understanding of, of, of folks being uh, some older and such, and they are some pretty long chapters, I mean verses. So we're going to actually just go and read through them as we talk about each point. Uh, but we will, when we have some shorter passages, I promise we will go back to doing that. And obviously the Lord's word is being honored right now through the preaching of it either way. So with that said, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go right into it. So if you would, please bow with me in prayer. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. Father, I thank you so much, Father, that we have had this opportunity to gather together as the body to lift high the name of Christ in song. And Father, through this time of worshiping, Lord, we have proclaimed that Christ is enough. And we have decreed, just proclaimed with this decree of the fact that you are great. Lord, all the earth will shout your praise. Because great are you, Lord. 
I'm just so thankful, Father, that we have the opportunity to do this because of the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us on Calvary's Hill. Thank you, Lord, for the free gift of grace and mercy that you have provided because of that finished work. And right now, Lord, as your word is proclaimed, I pray, God, that the meditations of my heart and my mind are holy and pleasing to you, Lord, that you would speak in this place right now, Lord, that I would just be your vessel. Father, that you would be glorified. We love you and we bless you in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you're taking notes, I hope you are. You can go ahead and jot down for your first note that we see here, particularly pertaining to verses 8 through 13, that we are dependent on God's presence. We are dependent on God's presence. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of burnt offerings. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, excuse me, on the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. That's going to be very important for what we see here, especially in this section. The Lord is speaking to Moses, and he is telling him what Aaron and his sons are to do. Now, verse 9, it specifically mentions there at the tail end that this altar is to be continually burning, this perpetual fire, which means everlasting, continual. It must stay burning. It's very important. Verses 10 and 11 says, And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire... Uh, has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Again, we have seen so far through all the descriptions of these offerings, God lays out specific rituals by which they should be done. And when they are done in the way that God prescribes, it brings what? A pleasing aroma because of obedience taking place. It honors and glorifies the Lord. 12 tells us the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn it on the fat of the peace offerings. Notice there again in that first part of verse 12, it says that the fire on the altar shall be kept burning. It should not go out. It says again in 13, Fire should be kept burning on the altar continually. It should not go out. As you can tell, I'm trying to drive home a point about the fire, about the fact that this fire must be continually burning, this perpetual fire. God has commanded it three times already through the opening of this passage that it must be that way. It must be burning continually. What significance would that fire be for the people of Israel? What would that mean to them? Well, we see from earlier in the Old Testament, again, we're in Leviticus, we're still in that opening books of the Bible, but we've seen thus far, if you've read through any bit of Exodus, you've seen how that fire would be represented. And I'm going to put some of that on the screen for you right now. Exodus 3, 2 through 5. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out in the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. If you remember from that story in the book of Exodus, God has met Moses where he is. God is revealing himself there to Moses, and he is doing so in the flaming bush. 
This tree that is not consumed. Any of you that have ever been camping before or have been around a fire, you know you put wood on the fire, and within probably about 20 or so minutes, especially if it's not a good thick piece of wood, what happens? That wood is all burnt up. This example here in Exodus shows us that God, in his presence being shown before Moses, it is this continual fire that is not consuming that tree. We see another example of Exodus 13, 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from them before the people. Again, we see in that example that God at night is showing himself, revealing his presence in the form of a fire to keep the light there for them. During the day, it's the pillar of cloud to guide them and direct them. At night, it's through the fire. Another beautiful example of that we see in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, a very short verse in 1229, he says, For our God is a consuming fire. And then again, lastly, there's plenty more examples. I'll give you one more in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. This beautiful picture as the Apostle John writes from Patmos and he talks about the revelation that's been revealed to him. What it will be like when we are all there in the Lord's presence. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Scripture lays it all out for us. Amen, indeed. Scripture lays it all out for us. We see this example of God, His presence being there before the people, providing light to the people. Specifically here in Leviticus, God is showing his presence already represented in the tent of meeting, this tabernacle where they are gathered. He's doing so in the menorah. And you may know what a menorah is, and if you don't, you may have seen images of it. It's the seven candles. And the priests would have those lit, and they had to be everlasting, this perpetual fire on those candles. So all throughout Scripture, we see these different examples. Now, there's three key things about that perpetual fire that I think can speak to us today. And I want you to jot these down. And some of this I got from Dr. Alan Mosley. It was just so good not to share, and I want to give him credit. The perpetual fire reminded, number one, the perpetual fire reminded the people of their continual access to God. The perpetual fire reminded the people of their continual access to God. Because the fire was always burning, they never saw the representation leave them. How does that apply to us today, church? The Lord Jesus has told us, for all of us who are in Christ, before he ascends to heaven, he gives the Great Commission. He tells his followers, he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, what? I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ Jesus promises that he is with us always. And because he's with us always, this means the good, the bad. Everything that we face in our suffering, he is there with us. In our joy, he is there with us. This perpetual fire to the people of Israel was a reminder. Folks, I am with you always. Keep the fire burning. I am with you. I am not leaving you. I will not abandon you. 
Folks, in 2021, going off of 2020 and many other things that are going on in our life, and I tell you now, the many things that will continually happen in our lives, isn't it good to know that the Lord is with us always? Praise God for that truth. Praise God for it. The second thing about the perpetual fire is that it reminded the people of the continual availability of atonement for sin. The continual availability for atonement for sin. You remember this whole sacrifice, what had to happen. I've said it over and over every time I've preached through this series so far. Every time we see bloodshed, it is for what? The atonement for sin. Matter of fact, we're going to see that again here in a few moments. This representation of God in the perpetual fire, it's this reminder that God and sin cannot what? Coexist. God and sin cannot coexist. The punishment for sin is death. God provided the means of atonement for sin through this fire on the bronze altar. Dr. Mosley that I, I mentioned a moment ago, he states it this way. The fire was always burning, so atonement was always obtainable. Imagine if you're the people of Israel there in that moment. The fire is always available, so you know right then and there, physically before your eyes, I have sinned against God, but praise God, the way for me to atone for my sin is right there readily available before me. The church in 2021, we can know this beautiful truth because of the perfect spotless lamb that is Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, an atonement has been made for the people. For the sins of all mankind, Christ Jesus suffered in our place on the cross. And because of his suffering on the cross, God's wrath was poured out on him and the blood that poured out made atonement for our sin. And we can know we can see an image of a cross. And for years, people can wear it. Some of you may have it in here now, and I'm not judging anybody for that. That's fine if you wear it. You might have something that on right now that has a cross on your necklace. We have these representations before us to remind us of what Jesus has done. But anytime we gather together with the saints, we gather to what? Exalt the name of Jesus to worship Christ because of the thing that he went through on the behalf of the church. Dying in our place. Suffering in our place. That atonement has been made to us. One beautiful passage from 1 John chapter 1-9 chapter says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful reminder for anybody in here right now, anybody at home watching, if you do not know Christ Jesus as Lord, you can confess your sins because he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. The third thing that we see in the perpetual fire is that it reminded the people of the power of God amongst them. It reminded the people of the power of God amongst them. We see this format by which God wants his people to sacrifice to atone for sin. And we have to note this. We've seen all these descriptions so far in Leviticus, but we haven't seen an actual sacrifice take place yet. It's all prescriptive. This is what you do. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. I say that word spoiler alert. Mr. Ed probably knows where I'm going with that. <laughs> Somebody from wrestling says that. We're some wrestling fans. Don't judge us for that. Spoiler alert. Leviticus chapter 9, 
We'll see it in a couple of weeks when we go through our series. But in Leviticus 9.24, the Word of God says this, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the priest of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. What is happening right there in that moment? The priest prepared the sacrifice in chapter 9, but God provided the fire. You could preach a sermon series on that verse alone. God provided again and again and again. And in this example in Leviticus, after seeing all the things that are laid out of how you are to handle it, the moment that the first sacrifice takes place, out of heaven God sends fire on the altar. The power of God on display to make atonement for sin. What does that sound like? The power of God and the grace and mercy of God on display, providing atonement for sin when the only begotten Son of God died on Calvary's cross. Beautiful. The people saw what God had done, and they fell to the ground on their faces in response to him. You have to think, surely moving forward, anytime they saw that fire, they remember that moment where God provided the fire. Understand the picture of grace as well that we see here. God provided the fire that was needed to make atonement for sin. And as I've already said, God showed his power and his grace by giving Jesus in our place. And for anyone who accepts that free gift of grace, the Holy Spirit indwells us and leads us through our sanctification. And Paul describes the beautiful gift of Jesus in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not by result of works that no one may boast. God empowers his people through the Spirit. God saves us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This free gift of grace that is given to us. Thank you, God, for that. So not only, church, do we see that we are dependent on God's presence, but moving forward in verses 14 through 23, we honor those whom the Lord has called. Honor those who the Lord has called. Look at 14 and 15 with me. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of fine flour and of grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The Lord transitions here to speak of the grain offerings and how it applies to the priest. And it, and it mentions there in verse 15 that the priest would burn a small portion of flour, thus again providing a pleasing aroma to God. As we've already talked about before, what Paul talks about in the New Testament, a fragrant offering to God when we live a life of obedience and holiness before God. 16 and 17 and 18. And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. Again, it had to be in a holy place. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. We see here that the Lord allows this to go to Aaron and his sons, the priests, almost as a stipend, if you will, for their service to the Lord. 
Notice there in verse 18 again, it said, whatever touches them shall become holy. This was to show symbolically the holiness because the priests represented God to the people. They ate this bread in the courtyard of the tent of meeting, and this is because they weren't allowed to do it anywhere else because it had to be in a holy place. The priests were the only ones authorized, excuse me, to represent the Lord, thus making them the only ones who could eat of this food. 19 and 20. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is atoned, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. The priests would come and they would offer this tenth of an ephah. Now, I mentioned this several weeks ago, and you may not remember, and I don't blame you because it's just a little notion, just a little note to make, but three-fifths of a bushel or 22 liters. That's what this tenth of an ephah is, and it's of this flour. It's of this regular grain offering, and they do it half in the morning, half in the evening. Now let's look at 21 through 23. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and bake pieces like a grain offering, and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as a decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So this offering was to be made with oil on a griddle, and it needed to be well mixed into baked pieces like that of a grain offering. Doing so, as it says, offered this pleasing aroma to God, and all of the grain offering of the priests would be wholly burned as an offering to the Lord. So what can we take away from that? What do we take away from hearing all of these things almost repetitive over and over Well, you may all hear what I'm about to say and think, well, Brian, why do you even have to point that out? We do that for you. Uh, And I'm not doing that at all, so don't mishear me. In this section of Scripture, we get here and we see how, as I said in point two, we honor those whom the Lord has called to serve. These priests, this is what they did. They didn't do anything else. They didn't have other jobs. They didn't have any other way of serving their family. This is a way in doing this that they were taken care of by God. God was providing the way for these priests to be taken care of. They didn't own land or anything like that. They served the Lord in the tabernacle. In moving forward, they served the Lord in the temple. This was the way in which they were taken care of. And the only reason I'm pointing this out is because I don't plan to go anywhere. But if God in his, in his mercy calls me home or, or calls me elsewhere or calls Walter elsewhere, I, I want our church to continually take care of those whom God puts in place to lead and serve. That's the only reason I'm pointing this out, besides the fact that it's there in God's word. The Apostle Paul speaks to something of this nature in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it reads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. Ultimately, God wants his church to provide for those who labor on behalf of the congregation to the Lord. This is an example in the Old Testament that we see how these priests that were there to represent between the people and God were taken care of. Which makes me just want to push a little bit further, not necessarily into the taking care of the minister, but into the notion of for anyone, listen, anybody who, who serves on behalf, God has provided for them. Again, God did what? He provided the fire for the people. 
And here we see that God provides for those that are leading. Again, a beautiful example that God always provides. Thank God for that. Next thing we see, we understand the necessity of bloodshed. We understand the necessity of bloodshed, verses 24 through 710. We're going to see in this section of verses how God's description of what is happening with the sin and the guilt offering. Look at 24 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for a sin shall eat it. In the holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood splashes on the garment, you shall wash that on which it is splashed in a holy place. I went ahead and went through 27 there. We see here that these priests would prepare and eat the food in the courtyard in a clean place. But I want you to make note of this. In verses 25, 29, and then chapter 7, 1, and chapter 7, 6. I'll say them again. Verse 25, 29, 7, 1, and 7, 6. These offerings were what? Most holy. And they carried weight because of the blood being shed and the atoning work that was being done via these offerings. The necessity of bloodshed. Look at verses 28 and 29. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scorned and rinsed with water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. Why? would they have to take that vessel that was not bronze and dispose of it? Well, because the blood that was shed would seep down into that clay pot. That bronze, it would not do that. So it could be scorched, it could be washed out, it could be reused. Because the blood had to be discarded each time. 30 tells us, But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any Blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. We must remember when it came to the sin offering, the priest offered the animal for his sin or for that of the community when doing so. And the sin offering was applied to the horns of the altar of incense, which was inside the tent. And it's because of this that the priest could not eat any of the animal. We see in a few verses how the priests benefit from the offerings, specifically the burnt offering or the grain offerings. Now bear with me, I know we're doing a lot of scripture here. Look at verses one through five of chapter seven. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and the blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all of its fat shall be, excuse me, offered, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the loins, and the long lobe of the liver. And he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. There in 1 through 5, we see this description of what is to be done with the guilt offering. And 6 says, Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. We see again how this applies and how the priest can do this. Look at 7. The beginning of 7 says, The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There was one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. We see here this example. Yes, this is descriptive this way. This is descriptive this way. There's one law for them because of how serious 
they are. Let's look 8 through 10. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. There again, providing for them. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. We see how the priests are being taken care of as we read through that. What are some takeaways from this for us? You've heard it say it time and time again. I just said it a few moments ago. We see it over and over. In the sacrificial system, when there is bloodshed, it is done to atone for sin. It is done to atone for sin. For us, as I've already mentioned, because of Christ Jesus' blood being sacrificed there on the cross, it makes atonement for any who would repent of their sin and confess Christ Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God has resurrected him from the grave. We talked about this right at the end of our study on 1 Peter. And you've heard me reference this verse earlier in this series, but I'll read it to you again. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is the precious blood of Christ that has made atonement for the sins of mankind that have separated men from God. And so my plea here today, again, anybody within the sound of my voice, in person or online, is if you do not know Christ Jesus, you are separated from the holy God of this world. And he has provided the means of atonement for sin through his son, sacrificed on Calvary's cross. And what it takes is, as we see in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Christ. We know that the fall of man took place in Genesis 3 that separates man from God. And because of that, there was the promise of the serpent's head being crushed by the offspring of Eve, which would eventually be Christ Jesus. He crushed the head of the serpent when he died on that cross, defeating sin and death, resurrecting to new life on the third day. And anyone, anyone who would repent of their sin and confess Christ Jesus, they are saved. If you have not done that, my prayer is that if the Spirit is drawing near, you would confess Christ. The last thing we see is that we handle communion faithfully. We handle communion faithfully. Verse 11. But before we get there, I'll, I'll say this. We see that God transitions from the sin and guilt offering to this peace offering. And there's something very important here that we've got to see. The sin and the guilt offerings, they came first to make atonement for that sin. And then this peace offering that follows, it's a way of having communion, fellowship with God. We have to also recall that the peace offering was the only offering that the offender could partake in eating. And so it opened the way for the offender to have communion with God. And we're going to see some examples of that. The first being a thanksgiving offering in verses 11 through 15. Just listen as I read. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with thanksgiving sacrifice, unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. 
with the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of unleavened, of, excuse me, of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood on the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until morning. This offering is recognized to the Lord. And it provided the needs for the worshiper. It was a token of thanksgiving to God for his goodness and his grace. Kenneth Matthews in his commentary says it this way. The offering of praise included a ritual practice of costly sacrifice and verbal testimony to God's goodness of the, excuse me, goodness to the worshiper. Now that word there, thanksgiving, we, I call this the thanksgiving offering. That word in Hebrew comes to the word toda, which is derived from the word yada, which means to confess or declare. This thanksgiving offering is to confess and declare the goodness of God that has been on display. And it usually involved the worshiper, family, priests, Levites, the poor, all these people around to give thanks for what God has done. We see an example of this in Psalm 22, 25 through 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. These are symbolic acts of the person's authentic devotion to God, crying out to him, praising him for what he has done. And it also gives us a picture of what is to come and what we're going to celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. Next thing we see are the vow and the free will offering, 16 through 18. 16 says, But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted. And he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. God makes very clear, this is the way in which this is to be done. If you do not do it this way, you will bear iniquity. Another example to us of following the Lord's obedience. Our God is not a genie in a bottle that we just rub the lamp and say, hey, I need you to do this for me. He expects obedience from his people. And like any good father, especially him being holy, the I am, the great I am, our God. You better believe if we as followers of Jesus do not live a life of obedience, we, we should expect to be disciplined at some point. We must be obedient in our following of the Lord. Look with me in 29. 29 through 21 says this. Excuse me, 19 through 21. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while an uncleanness is on him, the person shall be cut off from his people. 
And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. We're going to see here in 20, 21, 25, and 27 this stern warning from God that if they do not do this, they shall be cut off from the people. doesn't mean that the people would go and they would kill them but it means that they would be excommunicated from the people. They would not be allowed to be there in the midst. God takes this very seriously. What are some of the wrong things? Well, you heard me say this contaminating of the holy food uh, that because it's coming in contact with impure things of the worshiper. Uh, we see examples of something like that in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, you can go and look at that later. The unlawful of eating or fat or blood, look at 22 through 25. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of it in itself, and of the fat of one that is torn by beast may be put to any other use, but on no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. Here again. We know the sacrificial system, the fat was reserved for the Lord. Because it's just like we see with food today, the fat is, is usually pretty tasty, is it not? You get a good piece of steak, it can be pretty tasty. Sometimes it's a little chewy, but it's, it's this good thing. But here, the fat was reserved for the Lord. And this exception of eating the fat of the animals in question is it, if it was not permitted to be used as the food offering that we just read in 22 through 25. Look at 26 and 27. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, uh, whether of a fowl or an animal or any of your dwelling places. Whoever eats any blood, that a person shall be cut off from the people. The blood was most precious and represented the life of the animal. It could not be consumed there again. Not following what God said, the person would be cut off from the people. Lastly, almost done, 28 through 30. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from a sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, and the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. It shows this act of the worshiper bringing their offering to the tabernacle to God themselves. 31 through 34. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the, the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution for the sacrifice of your peace offering. There again, we see the contribution going to the priest, taking care of them. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offering and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the, excuse me, for the breast, 34, that is waved, and the thigh that is contributed, contributed, excuse me, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offering and have given them to Aaron and the priest and to his sons as a perpetual due to the people of Israel. We see this ritual laid out for how the priest shall do this. Lastly, 35 and 36. The Lord commanded, excuse me, 35, this is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from the Lord's food offerings. From the day they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord, the Lord commanded 
this to be given to them by the people of Israel from that day that they anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. Notice there, that term there for portion. It's a translated word that is mentioned only in that way, specifically this one time here in the Old Testament. Kenneth Matthew says that the word was carefully chosen by the author because of its connection to the related word translated anointed that appeared in verse 36. That verse refers to the ordination service of the priest who received anointing oil as a sign of their unique role as mediators of the offerings made to the Lord. What that text means is that the text ties exclusively portion gift to the ordained ministers only. Again, pointing to that contribution given. So with this last section of what we've seen here, I said that point number four, if you remember, it says we handle communion faithfully. We saw there many different times how God describes how if the person didn't do it in the right manner, they would be excommunicated, they would be cut off from the people. Does that sound like anything familiar when you look in the New Testament, when it comes to the Lord's Supper? The Lord makes it clear that before we come to take the Lord's Supper, one, it's only for followers of Christ, but number two, it's to be done in a worthy manner. Paul gives a description saying that if you do this in an unworthy manner, that it could bring about some pretty serious things on you, and I'll read those in a moment as we take the Lord's Supper. But before we get into that, I just want to just highlight and just say this. I know this is a lengthy passage. I know there's a lot of repetitive things in there. But I want us to continue to see as we are honoring our holy God and he has called us to be holy people, that we are to live God's way. As he has called us as his followers to live for his glory, we walk in obedience and we pursue holiness to him. So before we move into the Lord's Supper and sing our last song, I just want to do as we normally do at the conclusion of our time of the message Just a quick, quiet reflection. Asking the Lord, Father, what is it that you are saying to me today? Brian has gotten up there and he has rambled for a good period of time. What have you been saying to me during this time? If if you are a follower of Jesus, ask him, Father, what is it that I may have in my life that I'm not seeing that I need to repent of? What is it that you are maybe calling me to do next? And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask you, What is he saying to you now? Is the spirit drawing near? Is today the day of salvation for you where you would repent of your sins and confess Christ Jesus as Lord? And if today is the day of salvation for you, I want you to let me know that. Maybe you've never partaken the Lord's Supper and today would be the first day as a new follower of Christ. I rejoice in that with you. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection. We'll pray and then we'll move into our time of the Lord's Supper. Join me in prayer. Father, you are so good. Father, I thank you for the grace and mercy that you've shown us through Christ Jesus' finished work on Calvary's cross. His defeat of sin and death and his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to your right hand, interceding on behalf of the saints until the day you send him back to return. And how we long for that day, Father. Lord, I pray now as 
as the proclamation of your word has taken place, Lord, and we move into this time of the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray for those that are listening right now. I pray, Father, for the one that knows you as your child, a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would meet them where they are, Father. Maybe if they have sin in their life they need to repent of, Lord, I pray that they would repent of that and do a 180 and flee from it. Lord, if they are, are just walking in disobedience to you because you have laid out something that you are calling them to do, but they are scared, they are worried, they don't know what to do, Lord, that you would continually push them to that, Lord, and they would step out in faith and trust you with it. Father, maybe for the one that is sitting here and they have many questions about what it means to surrender their life to Christ, the person that is a non-believer, one that is here and they're, they're taking in the word week after week, but they haven't truly surrendered their life to you. I pray that you would speak to them now, Lord. Your spirit would move. And Lord, that they would repent of their sin and confess Christ Jesus as Lord. Father, above all things, as I always ask, Lord, I pray that you would have your way. That you would increase, that we would decrease, that you would be glorified. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.